0: Thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful works. We've gathered this day to hear of those wonderful works and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and also to go forth to proclaim them. Let us bow our heads and ask the Lord to be present with us. Almighty God, draw near to us that we may draw near to you. We dare not come before you, presumptuous that you're automatically here, but we do cry out and call that you would be present so that our worship would not be in vain. We pray you would quicken and refresh our hearts, renew and increase our strength so that we may grow into the likeness of Christ, and by our worship be enabled better to serve you in our daily life. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray and beseech you to be present. In his name we ask. Amen. Our first hymn is number 17, Praise the Lord, ye heavens adore Him." Thank uh-huh. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy from our Lord. Let us pray together the prayer of confession printed in the bulletin. Almighty God, who is rich in mercy to all those who call upon you, hear us as we come to you, humbly confessing our sin and transgressions and imploring your mercy and forgiveness. We have broken your holy laws by our deeds and words and by the sinful affections of our hearts. We confess before you our disobedience and ingratitude, our pride and willfulness, and our failure toward you and our fellow men. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and of your great goodness grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ was put to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Saints of the living God, Jesus Christ is the one designated Lord. He is the one given that title, as we see in Philippians chapter 2. Scripture testifies God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, and that name is Lord. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, as Scripture says elsewhere. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is built into our confession, such as the Nicene Creed. We confess that he's the Lord over all of life. He's the Lord over the demons and disease and uncleanness and nature. We have seen that as we've heard the Gospel of Mark preached. He victoriously defeats our sin, which makes him Lord over sin. He is Lord over the Sabbath and the law. He is Lord over the things that are destructive and against God and against the rebellion or that are part of the rebellion against God in this world. He is also Lord over the things that have been created and over uh, God's whole creation. He's the Lord over us, over human beings. Yes, we have a Lord over us. When we confess that He's Lord, we confess that He is the Lord of history and governments, that He is working out His rule over all these powers and authorities that are in this world. He's the Lord over politics and economics, the Lord of, over recreation and study, of medicine and education. He's the Lord of marriage and celibacy. He's the Lord of wealth and culture. So when we confess he's Lord, we're saying he's Lord over all things. We make this confession verbally, but we also have to practice this confession. We have to put it into practice. All of us are to live our lives under the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of all of life, over our whole life and all of life. We're not just to say it, we're to live according to that. Whatever we do, as the apostle says, we are to do it unto the Lord. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say amen. Our hymn is number 643, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. great privilege we have to bring our prayers to our Heavenly Father, not just our individual prayers, but our prayers together as the Church. Let us pray for those in need. Almighty God, our most gracious Father, we thank you that you are not deaf to us, but you hear our prayers. With the promise of your Son, Jesus Christ, we know that whenever we pray to you in his name, you hear us, and so now we do pray in the name of Jesus Christ together. It is as the people of Christ that we make our petitions and intercessions to you. We thank you for the church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city through whom you have given us so much, the stories of your grace, a living faith, the witness of words and deeds done for Christ and said for Christ, songs of praise that we might sing, and sanctuaries where we may worship you. We thank you for all those who've come before us and have given us so much. We pray we would not be short sighted and think only of our uh, recent, the church in recent memory, but remember the history of the church and its long time before us. We thank you for giving us many spiritual gifts for the upbuilding of the church. We pray for the church in this world, for its unity, for its purity, for its faithfulness, for its truthfulness. We know that in many ways, all those things are put to the test. We pray as well for our ministry at Providence. We pray for our classes classes and teachers, for our fellowship activities, for our studies and pastoral care during the week, for our attentiveness to each other. Grant that we might be a faithful church. Grant that we may be a growing church. May the good news of Jesus Christ be proclaimed and taught and demonstrated both for our own growth in Christ and for those who live in the world around us who need to see the light of Christ and repent and believe. Here are our prayers for the ministry of Providence and other churches that come to mind. We petition you for the preaching of the gospel O oh Lord, we pray you would send out more laborers and that some would even come out from this congregation. May they go forth and serve you as ordained to the position of proclaiming the gospel of ministers in churches. May, may the ministry of the word be considered honorable and worthy of service to you. We do pray for our missionaries, for Ben Westerveld in Quebec, for Ben in Haiti, for Mark Richline in Uruguay, for their families, the churches with whom they work. We also pray for our presbytery as it meets this week on Friday and Saturday. We remember Covenant OPC in London, Ontario, with their pastor John Ferguson, and Grace Covenant Church in Sheffield as they search for a pastor. Here are our prayers for our presbytery and our missionaries. Almighty God, we ask that you would be at work in this world which you have shown, to whom you've shown your love through Jesus Christ. We pray that wars and social violence and rebellions and revolutions and terrorism and viruses would not destroy us and would not shut down your church. Increase justice and restore order among the nations so that all might live in peace. For we know that you are merciful to all. And we pray for the people who are suffering great violence and danger in Afghanistan and North Korea, Syria, Nigeria, where there is great conflict. Also in our own cities where the homicide rates and violent assault has increased. Hear our prayers, O God. We thank you for blessing us as a nation. We pray for our president, Joe Biden, for our senators, Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters, for our governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, for our Supreme Court justices, for all those who rule over us and make decisions for the social order. We pray you would bless us with prosperity and peace, good order, social renewal, and liberty. We pray for our national institutions, for our legal system, especially those who work within it. May the judgments that are made be just for all and that you would give relief to the oppressed. We also pray for a respect for the orders of the family and the church which you have established in your creation. Here are our prayers for our nation. Merciful Savior, thank you for reconciling us to you and for creating Providence Church where we are members. We do pray for this congregation. Let us not falter as the people of Jesus Christ, but persist as the community of your word and sacrament. May we be a light to the world around us, confessing the Lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ in all that we do. We ask you to heal and deliver those who are facing adversity or are ill or have other needs. We pray for Jeff, for Terry, Eduardo, Fawn, and Bob, for Frida, and our friends, Becky, Mrs. Mesner, Bill, Tom, Phil, Angie, Karen, Judy, and others we name to you in silence. Remember your promise, O Lord, that upon the rock Of Jesus Christ, you will build your church, and the powers of hell will not prevail against it. In your merciful care, we confidently give our thanks and make our petitions through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
1: Let us now pray together uh, as we prepare to hear the Lord's word read and preached. Let us pray. Father in heaven, one of your prophets has said, your words were found and I ate them and they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. May this also be true of us that we would delight in your word as we see the face of Christ and hear his voice in the gospel, that his promises would be a comfort to us, his goodness and love and power for us on our behalf would give us joy and hope and confidence. May we grow in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn first to our Old Testament reading in Proverbs, chapter 19, verse
2: 21.
1: Hear now God's word. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Our Psalter response is Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your sacrifice love in the morning, and your faithfulness by the night, to
0: the music of the
2: blues and the heart, to the melody of
1: the fire. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. This stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the news my grass,
2: and all people who were they are doomed to destruction forever.
1: But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, are on high forever. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes <clears throat> the fall of my enemies. My ears to my evil assails. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green.
2: That the Lord is he is my rock, and there is no in
3: him.
1: Our second reading is from Acts chapter four. Beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, And finally, our gospel reading in Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord.
0: We've been following Jesus with the Gospel of Mark. I like to say it that way because anyone can think they're following Jesus, but we need to do so with the Gospel. He's the Lord, Jesus is the Lord who invades the sinful world. That's what we hear right off the bat. In the Gospel of Mark, with Jesus, God's kingdom is at hand because he's the ruler of God's kingdom. Where the ruler is, his kingdom is. He, it, is in, it is the inbreaking of God's rule. God has asserted his authority. He has asserted it in such a way that he defeats all rebellions against him. This invasion is the invasion of God's dominion in this world. As we have listened to the preaching of Mark's gospel, we have seen that Jesus is the Lord. That's one of the major themes in this gospel. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord over people. Remember his disciples, they were fishing by the sea and Jesus called them and they dropped their nets and immediately followed him. He's the Lord over the demons, over sickness. His teaching is with the authority of God. Why? Because he is God. Jesus is Lord over sin and broken community. He's Lord over his purpose for coming into this world. He doesn't let the disciples tell him what to do and where to go. He's the Lord over his purpose. He's the Lord over the stormy sea. He's the Lord over nature, but it's more than nature. The stormy sea, the storm on the sea, was a way of indicating the chaos that's in this world. And what did Jesus do? He commanded it to be silent, to be still, and the chaos, the stormy sea, became a calm water. With the Lord Jesus Christ, God's kingdom breaks into this world, and Jesus confronts sin and evil and defeats them. Jesus even asserts his authority over death and raises people from the dead. We have followed Jesus and listened to him teach that following him is a discipleship of suffering. It is a discipleship of being last and a servant of all. Jesus says that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so we, as we follow Jesus, become servants also of others, not putting ourselves first. We have heard his teaching that Israel, God's people, is expanded to include Gentile believers. And this, therefore, creates a new body of, of God's people that's bigger than just the old Israel. We have listened as Jesus has told us about this time we are in after his resurrection and before the end. We heard a lot about the end. Um, with the apocalyptic language in chapter 13. It is the time when the authority of God in the temple has now given way to the authority of God in Jesus Christ. And we've heard how we must be alert to Jesus' power and glory even now in this world. He will come again in glory and power, and we need to be be aware of that and be uh, awake for that. But we also need to be awake to his glory and power in this world right now. The Jesus who will come again is the Jesus who came before, and so his first coming and second coming are kept very close together, right next to each other, within the person of Jesus Christ. Now today, we've come to this section of Mark that's about the week of his passion, his suffering and death. Jesus, who healed the sick, cast out the demons, taught what it means for his kingdom to evade this world and what his mission is, his mission to be put to death this this we've come to this point where he will be put to death now there have been different responses to jesus death some would say it was tragic if you listen to the gospel of mark jesus did not deserve to die what did he do to deserve to die Even those who disagree that he's Lord, those who are not Christians, those who would not confess that he's Lord, and that his kingdom is the kingdom of God, surely they can understand understand how he did good and helped people. They can see that in, in the story of the gospel, how he promoted positive changes for society. Killing someone like this is tragic. If there was ever someone who was a candidate for humane laws and just sentencing, it would be Jesus. One response is that Jesus' suffering death is sadly unfortunate. Now, another response is that Jesus' death put an end, this is sort of the opposite way of thinking about it, but put an end to an incendiary troublemaker who could ignite a destructive wildfire. There have been those who've seen Jesus that way. Jesus was a threat to social stability, to individual free choice, each of us living the way we want to live. It reminded me of a song actually uh, was thinking of um, Gwen Stefani, but um, the song by Bon Jovi is a little bit more to the point. It's my life. They both. It seems like that's a common phrase in pop songs. It's my life. Everybody's singing that way. But anyway, Bon Jovi, it's my life. It's about living life to the fullest, living life the way I want to live it. Bon Jovi even refers to Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, his song. And not giving any ground to those who challenge how we want to live. Doesn't that seem to ring true with the way people think in our culture? So Jesus gets in the way of that. If he's the Lord over our lives, he gets in the way of that, so it's better that we get rid of him. So that might be another response to Jesus. And then one more response, it is with the gospel, it's what the gospel of Mark tells us, Jesus came in order to suffer and die. So there's also that response, that response explanation, that interpretation of what Jesus did. And that's what the Gospel of Mark tells us, that it was God's plan. Therefore, while human beings have their own reasons for killing Jesus, God had his purpose for Jesus' suffering and death. Sort of different responses, different ways to understand Jesus' death. Now, like other tragedies, and if you've done any reading or seen any plays or watched any movies, you've seen um, tragedies, such as Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or Eli Weissel's Night Trilogy, um, what is it, the Night Dawn or Dark Dawn Day, something like that, um, where Eli Weissel was in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, and then he writes his story, his trilogy about that. But these different stories or others that might come to your mind, tragedies. They have different agents or actors in those stories, and it's the same way with God, the, Mark's gospel or the gospel story of Jesus' passion. There are different actors or agents in the story. The chief priests and scribes are some of those actors or agents. We read about them in verse one of our lesson. They were alarmed by Jesus, and they were alarmed almost from the beginning of his ministry. You really have to back up in the gospel of Mark. Mark just sort of puts it out there in chapter 14, verse 1 of our lesson. But if you back up in the Gospel of Mark, you really have a sense of what this was all about. The chief priests and scribes were alarmed by Jesus. In chapter 2, after Jesus forgave the paralyzed man his sins, Mark says, Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak thus? Why does he forgive this man his sins? It's blasphemy who can forgive sins but God alone. Their opposition grew as Jesus continued to do his work and to teach. Remember, these are some of the agents and actors in our story. So let's look at them. Their opposition grew as Jesus continued to do his work and to teach. Soon the priests and the Pharisees began to line up with the scribes against Jesus. They're starting to get a little bit larger group around them who are lining up against Jesus. They were appalled that Jesus made pronouncements that only God could make. And at the, very, at the core of their being, of these antagonists to Jesus, they were agitated. They were stirred up by Jesus. We see that almost right away at the, in the beginning of Mark. They were predisposed against Jesus. Jesus shook up their belief about God. And part of it was that Jesus did not fit what they expected, and part of it was that they began to see Jesus as a danger, a danger to the way they thought Israel should be. Jesus pushed them off their law of Moses' balance beam and their presumptions about their special status as God's people. He pushed them off of that. But also they were coming to the conclusion that Jesus was an imposter, someone who claimed to be from God, who claimed to be the Messiah but really wasn't. And so his popularity could mislead the people. Their agitation quickly grew, and as we continue listening to the Gospel of Mark, as we continue reading through it, if we were to back up to the very beginning and continue to go through it, their agitation quickly grew, and soon it was blossoming into outright antipathy. More and more they challenged Jesus. More and more they were clearly against him. At first, they indirectly confronted him. Indirectly they confronted him, like when they saw his disciples plucking grain in the wheat fields on the Sabbath, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They questioned that the, what the disciples were doing, but really what they were doing was challenging Jesus. Why do you, Jesus, allow your disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath? That was the implication in their question. And it didn't take long, but disturbance and opposition and antipathy turned into plans to kill Jesus. After Jesus healed the man with the disabled hand, Mark says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Not long after this, the scribes went to Jesus' home and declared that Jesus was possessed by the devil Given their predilection against Jesus, that's how they explained his exorcism of demon-possessed people. How can this man cast out demons unless he's one of them? And Jesus kind of shows them the faulty reasoning there. Why would Beelzebub or the, or the devil cast out his, his own from people? But nevertheless, that's what they did. They figured Jesus was lined up with the devil because he was able to use the power to cast out the demons. By the middle of the Gospel of Mark, the torrent of opposition to Jesus is so strong that Jesus declares that he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. After Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, and the Sadducees, each one of these groups could no longer contain their antipathy for Jesus, and each group approached him when he was in the temple teaching, and they tried to trap him. And so there are these stories of these conversations in chapter 11 and 12 um, of Mark. Now, here we are. The Jewish leaders are actively putting their plans to kill Jesus into motion. Mark says in our lesson, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two feasts have now be- virtually become one. One. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, verse 1. At the end of our reading is this brief reference to Judas, another actor, agent in the story. His action coincide with the Jewish leaders. Mark tells us that Judas went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. Because it is a surprise, I mean, really, if you're listening to the Gospel of Mark and you were just hearing it for the first time, who would see this coming? Who would see that one of the disciples was going to betray Jesus? So Mark Mark makes sure to tell us that Judas is one of the twelve disciples in case we thought, oh, this must be some other Judas. I mean, how could one of his disciples do this? Now, Mark doesn't elaborate on Judas' motive like the gospels of Matthew, Luke and John do they all give a re- give more of a reason why he did this. Mark does mention that money was offered to Judas, but you know Matthew makes this explicit. He tells us that Judas asked for payment for betraying Jesus. So this suggests that Judas acted out of avarice, out of greed. Luke and John explain Judas' actions as giving into the temptations of Satan. Satan entered his heart. In other words, he was tempted. Satan is is presenting him with a temptation, and Judas accepted uh, accepted that temptation. And so Luke and John explain it that way. But the result was that Judas acted with the Jewish leaders against Jesus. This short story about Judas forms a little bracket in our lesson with the plan of the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, on either end of our lesson, there are those who are acting against Jesus to kill him. In between is the larger story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. So our lesson is like a sandwich. It's like a little mini sandwich within the story of Jesus' passion In chapter 14, it goes into chapter 15, Our lessons like a sandwich with the two pieces of bread on the outside and the filling on the inside. Or if you like Oreo cookies, go with that one. The two uh, black parts of the cookie on the outside and the white filling on the inside. Mark does not tell us the name of the woman who anointed Jesus. John tells us it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, but Mark doesn't identify her. Mark wants us to focus exclusively on what she did. Boldly, she entered the dinner party of the men at Simon the leper's house. And you might wonder about Simon the leper. Why are these people eating at this leper's house? Well, it could be that he had been a leper and he was now declared clean and so he's just known as Simon the leper. That would be sort of sad like Jeff the COVID victim or something like that. But um, hopefully those kind of identifiers would leave. But anyway, it could be that, or it could be that later on he got leprosy and he was known to the community of Mark that way, that later he ended up getting leprosy. But either way, he has this this sort of moniker, this name, Simon the Leper. And this woman, who is more important than Simon the Leper, <laughs> she entered the dinner party of the men and This is significant because women were not allowed at such parties, but she went anyway. As they all stared at her, as you must imagine they did, she took a large bottle she was carrying and opened it, and instantly the fragrant aroma of sweet nard filled the room. Mark tells us it was a costly ointment. This was no lotion from Bath and Body Works. It was not a Coco Chanel perfume that you could buy at Ulta. The nard this woman had in the bottle was worth 300 denarii. That was a year's income for a common laborer, a year. Without second thoughts, the woman woman broke the neck off the bottle and poured the wonderful balm over Jesus' head. Now, she wasn't supposed to be there, but this woman didn't let that stop her. She was dedicated to Jesus. As for the ointment of nard, it was apparently a common courtesy to pour oil or some kind of ointment on a guest's feet. We know that, for example, because in Luke chapter 7, Jesus chides the Pharisee for not, in the same kind of story, the woman pours uh, the uh, ointment on Jesus' head. He chides the Pharisees for not even pouring anything on his feet. And that apparently was a common custom. But she comes in and pours it on his head. The woman poured out the entire bottle of nard on Jesus' head. Now, we might all think, ooh, gross. You know, I try to wash my hair in the morning. I don't want oil all over it. But this was considered a very kind and generous and wonderful thing that she did. Her generosity was overflowing. She didn't just take a little, you know, tablespoon out of the bottle and, dink, a little drop on the head. She poured the whole thing on his head her generosity was overflowing so much that it offended some at the dinner she didn't hold back any of the ointment mark tells us they were indignant and wanted to know why the money for the nard had not been given to the poor <clears throat> to the poor and their objection sounded very pious it's a very pious objection a faithful jew helped the poor that was one of the tenets of being a faithful Jew, giving alms, charity. It was even commanded in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 15 says, For the poor will never cease out of the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in the land. So a faithful Jew who followed the law of Moses was to, do, to give to the poor, to the needy. So to object and say, why wasn't some of this money used for the poor? Sounds like a good faithful, religious, pious kind of uh, objection. However, Jesus defended her generosity and devotion to him. It is good to give generously to the poor. It is unfortunate that sometimes you hear people using this as an excuse not to help the poor. The poor are always in the land, so therefore they're just there. We just have to accept it, and they have to accept the fact that they're poor, and we'll just let them be poor. Well, that's a horrible use of scripture. Jesus never says that. The poor do need charity and almsgiving and uh, and help Um, and we are to help them we are to be generous to the poor but it's also good to give generously to Jesus Jesus even calls it a good work I think our translation ESV says a beautiful thing or something like that but the language is actually a good work verse 6 Jesus calls it a good work the woman had chosen to do a good work for Jesus and that is right by pouring out the whole bottle on Jesus' head, she showed her total devotion to Jesus. It was like the woman at the temple. You remember that when uh, Jesus was sitting there with his disciples, and he saw the the widow coming forward, and everyone's dropping their coins in the in the treasury box, and she puts in all the money she had, two pennies. And I'm not just talking about all the money she had in her pockets. I'm saying all the wealth she had, which is not much. I say pennies. It was actually a very small percentage of, uh, of uh, what we might call a dollar. It was probably even less than a penny. But two of these little coins into the treasury box. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who were contributing to the treasury, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, her whole living, Everything. So just like the woman in the temple, the woman who poured the entire bottle of nard, we can imagine that she probably used all of her wealth to buy this bottle. She poured the whole bottle on Jesus' head, and she showed that she was all in for Jesus. The woman acted with faith and love for Jesus, and Jesus commends her to us. Of the several characters or agents or actors in our story, in our lesson, the woman is the one who did what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, it's the woman's action that Jesus says will be remembered. So I need to make sure you understand what she did. Jesus says, and truly I see to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So guess what? It's being told right now. Verse 9. What she did was anoint Jesus for burial. It was a common Jewish custom to anoint the dead with perfumes, with sweet-smelling uh, things like nard, although probably nard was, was uh, too expensive for most Jews, so they would have had other kinds of perfumes. The body of the deceased was not buried like in our internments today where you, the body is in a casket or possibly an urn and then put into the ground and after that the earth is piled up on top and that's it. That's the end of it uh, after the funeral In the days of Jesus, the body was laid out in a grotto or in a niche, in a small cave. The body's laid out. You could still enter the cave, and there's the body in front of you. Soon after the body was laid out, family and friends, maybe a day or two later, family and friends of the one who had died would come to the body and pour the sweet-smelling perfumes and ointments on it. But the key point is this. They did this after the person died. The woman in our lesson anointed Jesus' body for burial before he had died. Jesus even makes this explicit in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burying. And this is a very curious thing. It's curious not just because it was contrary to custom. It's also curious because her action was a gospel action. By anointing Jesus' body before his death and burial, the woman bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus would be crucified and buried, but he also would rise from the dead. And his resurrection would be a bodily resurrection. This means that even though his body would be laid in the tomb, it would not remain there. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus rose from the dead before his body could be anointed with perfumes while it was laid out. At the end of Mark, in the resurrection story, the women brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus in the tomb on the first day of the week, early on, on that first day. And what they found that morning was an angel sitting beside the place where the body of Jesus had been. They found no body to anoint. The action of the woman who anointed Jesus' body in our lesson was an action that witnessed to his resurrection. The women couldn't anoint it before after So she anoints it before because they couldn't anoint it after, you see? So it indicates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's subtle, but it's there. And if we take it in line with the whole Gospel of Mark, it really pops out at us. This is why Jesus says her action relates to the preaching of the Gospel. The preaching of the Gospel includes, at its core, Jesus' death and resurrection. There are... Uh, So her action was indicative of the gospel, and Jesus commends her as one whose action is participating and showing the gospel. There are several different people acting in our gospel lesson this morning, and I've tried to indicate those different agents or actors. There are the priests, the scribes, Judas Iscariot, the woman, the disciples, others at the dinner party, and Jesus Now, be that as it may, there are basically three kinds of actors in this story. There are those who act against Jesus, those who act for Jesus, and Jesus' own action. The priests, the scribes, and one of the disciples, Judas, were against Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. These wanted to stop Jesus from doing what he came to do. The woman was totally devoted to Jesus and his mission, and she poured out everything to anoint him. And then there's Jesus. Jesus. Regardless of those who were against him, Jesus proceeded forward according to God's plan and gave up his life to save us from our sins. So here are these actors and how they sort of line up in relationship to Jesus. What we have in the story is something called double agency. We human beings are agents in this world. An agent means one who acts. Every one of us is an actor in this world. God created us with freedom and responsibility. He did not create human beings as robots who simply follow a preset code. If that were the case, the fall of humanity into sin would never have happened. Instead, God created human beings freely able to love him and respond to him in obedience. However, freedom means one can act for God or against God. Even in our sin, even after humanity fell into sin, we continue to have a certain freedom, although it has become caught up in sin. So sinful humanity acts freely in its sin. Human beings are responsible for what they do, whether they like it or not. And our culture is full of people who don't want to take responsibility for their actions and a culture that wants to sort of uh, support that, justify that. It's not my fault. The scribes and priests who acted on their plan to kill Jesus were responsible for their action. The woman who anointed Jesus with the nard was responsible for what she did. None of these agents in our lesson are robots. Nothing in it indicates they're robots, mechanically following a preset code. Just like today, those who attack and harm people are responsible for what they do. Even if they are in a broken society with conditions that contributed to what they did, how they were raised, the kind of neighborhood they were in, whatever, they're responsible for what they've done. At the same time, God also acts in freedom. He freely acts according to his plans. His freedom is not the same as ours because he's not captive to sin, nor is he captive to us. God always does what he wills to do, he's perfectly free. God works out his plan through and over whatever plans we humans have. So, for example, the scribes, priests, and Judas had their plans for Jesus. They were free in their pursuit of those plans as much as limited human beings can be. We need to remember we're not God. We, don't have, we never have had perfect, unlimited you know, freedom. So they, were, they acted out of that limited freedom that they had. And they were responsible for their plans. They are held accountable for what they did. They do not get a free pass just because God had his own plan. Mysteriously, in and through it all, God was working out his plan with Jesus Christ our reading from the, the second reading from Acts puts this together this way with the prayer of the church. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now we can hear that as, oh, they were robots, and so God just moved them around like men on a chessboard. No, it's not what it's saying. They were not preset to do that. But God, in, 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 in what they're doing and their freedom and their responsibility for what they did, God is working out his plan, and his plan is what is accomplished. This is not saying that those who, who were opposed to Jesus were acting were not free to act according to their plans or were not responsible for what they did. They were. There's nothing in what this, this prayer in Acts, 4, in Acts 4 that indicates that they weren't responsible for what they did so it 's a matter of double agency those who had their plans against Jesus and God with his plan that he worked out, even with the plans of those who who were opposed to him now that's that 's mystery there 's mystery in that we can 't fully understand how that happened. The problem is to turn uh, these humans uh, human people into robots who just moved around on a chessboard that 's not what 's happening here and they're not we humans are not perfectly free we 've already sinned we 're already Dealing with the consequences of sin in our lives, that does affect our freedom and responsibility. But God is able, in some uh, in a wonderful, majestic way, to work out his plans through all of this. And that's what he did with Jesus. Those with their plans against Jesus and God with his plan that he worked out, even with the plans of those who were opposed to Jesus. As long as we are clear that God in his action is not equal to human action, we can keep this understanding of double agency there. I think, unfortunately, a lot of times we've boiled it down to man, people, men, women have their plans, and God has his plan. Somehow they're equal, that these are equal agents. They're not. God's the creator. God is the Lord. So he is working out his purposes, and he's not limited by ours, which is good. Because, how else would he have been able to save us from our sin and bring his Savior into the world? So, now through faith, Jesus sets us free as Christians from being against him. At one time, we were against God and we were part of the human race that was opposed to God. Now we are for him through the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And as we follow Jesus, we are to take action for the gospel, we are to act for the gospel like the woman who anointed Jesus. You are agents for the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. You are actors. You are not bystanders. You're not neutral. You're not just sitting there. You are actors. You are agents, and Jesus Christ has made you an agent for the gospel. Gospel actions are those acts that bear witness to the gospel. The woman bore witness to the gospel before Jesus died. We bear witness after Jesus was raised from the dead. Gospel action today does not just explain the gospel. It's not just repeating the words. It's action that indicates that Jesus is alive. Just like the woman took action that indicated that he would be raised from the dead, we are to take action that indicates that Jesus is alive, such as coming to worship, what you've done today. Now, maybe you haven't really thought about it lately, but it's good to think about it again. What's the point of coming to worship Jesus if he's dead? What is the point? And a lot of our culture thinks that he is dead. He's long gone, and so they don't come to worship. They've got it right. If he's dead, why bother? But he's not, so we sing our praise to him, and we pray to him because he's alive. That's gospel action. The same for listening to the word of God read and preached and receiving the Lord's Supper. What's the point of all of that if Jesus is dead? What's the point of listening to these words, as wonderful as they may be, as full of wisdom as they may be, as full of truth as they may be? If Jesus is dead, what's the point? But he's not dead, and so we come to hear his word spoken to us, and we come to eat the holy food that he feeds us. Gospel action is also refusing to go along with those who oppose Jesus. And as you know, our culture is more and more full of people who oppose Jesus, who are against him. Those who try to make Jesus irrelevant or those who just want to destroy him. Those who want to erase Jesus from history. Gospel action is confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord in our society. That he's alive and he's our Savior and Lord right now, even at the risk of being ostracized. Gospel action also forgives those who hurt us and oppose us, just like Jesus did on the cross. And we're not just following his example. We're doing it because he's alive and he's forgiven us. And we have a living relationship with him so we can have a living relationship with others who have hurt us. And we can forgive them the sin they've done against us. So go forth and act for Jesus as agents for the gospel just like the woman who anointed Jesus at that dinner. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and to free us to serve you. Give us grace to receive, thankfully, the fruits of his redeeming work and to follow daily the action of his new life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith. Let us remember that we confess our faith as the church that is faithful. We confess it before the world, and we confess it to our Lord who hears. Let us confess together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory, to judge both the living and the dead, His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table, I hope I get the number right, is 473, Jesus Sinners Doth Receive. fulfilled by Jesus, and one of those is in the book of Malachi, where the Lord says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, and that, that sin, that, or that incense, that pure offering is Jesus Christ, and so we come here to celebrate that, um, that offering that he has made for us. The apostle reminds the church about the supper, that the cup of blessing which we bless is it not a communion in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is it not a communion in the body of Christ. We always should stop and think about that word communion for a minute. Uh, The word is koinonia in 1 Corinthians 10, indicating fellowship or participation. And so it's a communion, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. There is something wonderful. Mystical and wonderful that happens with this meal where the Lord is present with us and he is feeding us with his own body and blood. Having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us now come to his table and receive his gifts, these that are offered for us today. All who have been baptized and publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ and are uh, communicative members of a Christian church who belong to a Christian church, you are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise through your beloved Son Jesus Christ, your living word, through whom you've created all things who was sent by you in your great goodness to be our Savior, and by the power of the Holy Spirit He took flesh and as your Son, born of the Virgin Mary, lived on this earth, lived among us, and became one of us. We remember his sacrifice for us sinners, how he opened wide his arms for us on the cross. He put an end to the powers of death and sin by dying for us, and he revealed the resurrection by rising to new life. So he fulfilled your will and won for you, a holy people. And now we give thanks because you have highly exalted him and given him the name which is above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And with the whole heavenly host we praise your great and glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Lord, you are holy indeed. You are the source of all holiness. Grant by the power of your Holy Spirit, according to your holy will, our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup will be for us a communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence, only worthy because of Jesus Christ and and his uh, cleansiness of our sin, justifying us in your sight. We pray that you would accept our service in this world as we seek to live as your people and serve you to be agents for your gospel and that you would accept the offering of our praise and thanksgiving which we make as we come to this table. We thank you that you have poured out your Holy Spirit upon your people, that you are gather, gathering into one in your kingdom all who share this one bread and one cup, so that we in the company of all your blessed people may praise and glorify you forever. Through him by from whom all good things come, Jesus Christ our Lord. By whom, and with whom, and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Peace, according to your word. For our eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number six forty-seven. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
3: Announcements this morning Uh, just asking for ongoing prayer for uh, the uh, work that uh, Pastor Jeff is doing at Lawrence Tech every Wednesday. Uh, Please keep that in your prayers. And then also, uh, this Friday and Saturday is our Presbytery meeting, which is our regional church for Michigan, Indiana, and Ontario. Um, They're having a two day meeting, so it's going to be a, a long meeting. The um, rationale for that is that there's a number of um, uh, men that are, are coming up for ordination and, and so forth. And so in our presbytery, we take that very seriously, and there's a number of lengthy or a lengthy exam that takes place. And so with a number of uh, men that are coming up, uh, this presbytery, they're going to have it in two days. So uh, just please keep that in your prayers. And uh, then uh, Thursday Bible study will be uh, starting up again this Thursday. And you are continuing the same study, which is learning to um, read the Bible, uh, which sounds like a simple, simple thing, but uh, there are helpful um, ways to approach understanding Scripture. And so that will continue on. And if you missed it last time, this is probably a good time to start back in because I'm sure there will be a review and catch up and so forth. So, I would encourage you to uh, join. And uh, John, are we going to be uh, broadcasting that as well? Yeah, that'll be available online as well if you're unable to uh, make it here. So please, uh, please uh, plan on attending that. Um, I can add that that broadcast will be a whole lot better than
2: the Nebraska. Then what?
3: Well, there's no doubt about that, which is coming from Heidi Wilson. That's really saying something. <laughs> she's a she's a true corn husker. Um, Jeff, are we uh, adult CE today? Mm-hmm. OK, yeah. So we are going to be having adult CE and we're continuing the Reformation study uh, digging deep. Um, so a deeper dive into the Reformed faith. Uh, so unless there's anything else. We will go ahead and dismiss, and then we'll begin uh, at a quarter two here for uh, adult CE. Thank you.